Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 this weekend, and we'll be in Ephesians next weekend as we look at Ephesians chapter 2. But this morning, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome all those that are joining us via our live stream. So grateful so many join with us, um, whether it be on the YouTube channel or on our website, um, but we're grateful for all who are worshiping with us online. And then also the venue service right down the hall, grateful for you, and also Reach Church DeSoto. It's a blessing to have you with us. Next week, you'll get to hear Pastor Ryan live over at Reach Church, and we'll be looking at the see. You'll be studying the same passage we are as well in Ephesians chapter 2, but this morning, Ephesians 5. On Father's Day, kind of a counterpart to what we looked at on Mother's Day, we find the role of a husband. What does it look like to be a godly man and a godly husband? And I just make this disclaimer up front. I don't come as someone who's got all this figured out. I pray you know that every week as I come to God's Word. I don't come as, the Word of God is true. The only authority I have is the Word of God. Um, just like you, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and, uh, and so I'm grateful that I've got a gracious Lord, because I've made plenty of failures as a husband and a father, and uh, I'm grateful I got a gracious Lord, I'm grateful I got a gracious wife, and uh, I'm grateful I got two gracious boys that put up with me sometimes. But you know, all of us are sinners saved by grace, amen? And uh, we come to God's word, and God sets a high bar, doesn't he? Sets a high bar for us to live up to. Um, on Mother's Day, we looked at the instructions to a wife. Uh, the wives only get three verses, and we get seven, men. Why? Some say it's because the wives are smarter, and it just takes three verses to get them on board, and us men, a lot of uh, conjecture. But here's what I believe. Why, why do we get so much more instruction? Here's what I believe in all seriousness. It's because the leadership of the home is critical. The leadership of the home is critical. When an organization is not running properly and there are problems, where do you go? Go to leadership. And you'll find this to be true throughout Scripture. As goes the leadership, so goes the nation. As goes the leadership, so goes the church. And as goes the leadership, so goes the home, the family. The role of leadership is critical. Men, God has called us to be leaders in our home. Not because we're smarter, not because we're stronger, but because God is sovereign. God is a God of order. And he says to us as men, you, you lead. But what does it look like to lead? Because I think the world's idea of leadership and the standard that God places before us is oftentimes very different. What does it look like to lead as husbands and as fathers in our home? And I love this about God's word. He makes it plain for us. This is not difficult. It's simple. In fact, he's given us a, a wonderful illustration to help us better understand how we are to love our wives and lead our family. So let's pray together, just in a spirit of humility this morning, coming before God's word. Let, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. You, you've not left us to our own devices when it comes to who you are. You've revealed yourself. 
You've not left us to our own devices in terms of how we, how we solve the problems of our life. You've told us very plainly it's through the gospel. And when it comes to the home, this institution that you ordained, marriage, you've not left us to our own devices. You, you designed marriage. Who better to tell us how to operate within marriage than the one who made it? And so, Lord, I, I pray today, I think oftentimes these things that we're going to talk about today, they're simple. They're clear. The difficulty doesn't come in their understanding. Their difficulty comes in obeying, applying. So, God, give us hearts not just to hear, but hearts to obey, to be the men you've called us to be. And God, instruct all of us. Speak to all of us today by means of your word and your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think in this passage, as I look here, verses 25 through 33, God gives us, specifically to us as husbands, at least six lessons that we, we need to understand as we try to operate in the, in the marriage relationship as God has called us to. And six lessons that I see here. The first is right there, right off the bat, in the first few words of verse 25, when it says, husbands... Love your wives. That's the first thing. A husband is to love his wife based on a commitment and not emotion. A husband is to love his wife on the basis of a commitment, not an emotion. Husbands, love your wives. You've heard this before, but the Greek has several different words for love. There's uh, phileo love, uh, the uh, brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's just a friendship pal kind of love. And then there's the eros, the emotional romantic love, and but the word that is used here, it's an agape love. It's a, it's a love that's most often used to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. Agape love is a love that's based on a choice and a commitment. Christ had an agape love for the church and his people. I don't think Jesus got emotionally passionate about the cross. His love was based on a commitment and a choice. What's interesting about this, the, the Bible never calls me to be emotionally in love with my wife, although it's a really good thing. But the Bible never commands me to be emotionally in love with my wife. Scripture says that the basis of my love is a choice and a commitment that I made both to my wife and to God. You know, I've heard it described, I think it's a wonderful analogy, that, that marriage is intended to be a lot like a game of tennis where you volley back and forth, that you... Uh, volley and the other reciprocates. And you volley and you reciprocate. And I think it's a wonderful analogy, but what this passage teaches me is that I'm to respond to my wife and love my wife despite the presence or the lack of reciprocation. In other words, regardless of how she responds to me, I'm called to love her. Now, reciprocation makes it a whole lot more fun, uh, but it's not required. Some of you have probably heard somebody say this in your life that I'm, in, I'm, not in, I'm not in love with that person anymore. I don't emotionally feel in love with her. And my response is the Bible never commands that anyway. I'm to love my wife on the basis of a commitment and not emotions. Love your wife, period. And I understand that this is not American. The American way is that you're committed to your wife as long as she acts and responds in the way that you want her to. But that mentality is not the standard of Scripture. It's not God's way. 
In fact, I would say this way, if you only love your wife when she responds or acts in the way you want her to, you don't really love your wife, you love you. No, the Bible tells me to love my wife regardless. It's not based on emotion, but a choice, a commitment. Men, you, you married a sinner. Wives, you married a sinner. And sometimes it's not always easy to respect your husband. Men, there's gonna be days when it's not easy to love your wife. But you don't love her on the basis of what she does or what she deserves, but you love her because God commands it. Husbands, love your wife. Well, what does that look like? Because it sounds so sterile. What does this look like? Well, God goes further. He gives us an illustration. And so we find the second lesson in the latter portion of verse 25 when it says, just as Christ loved the church and gave her, gave himself up for her. Love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the second thing. A husband is to give himself up for his wife. The husband is to give himself up for the wife. Jesus is our example. What was his example? Jesus made a choice to love us. Did he have to? No. Did we deserve it? No. But he agaped us. His love was based on a commitment. And his love led him to lay down his wants and his desires for our benefit and salvation. And that is to be the model of my love for my wife, that my love for faith is to be sacrificial, that her desires are more important than my own. Jesus laid down his life willingly for the church. He submitted himself willingly. Men, we are to willingly lay down our own desires in favor of our wives. You've heard me say when we talked about this And the first portion with the wives, the the verse that kind of governs all of this is verse 21 when it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And you're wondering, well, how do we as husbands, as we're called to leave, how do we subject ourselves to, how how do we submit to our wives if we're called to lead them? Well, I'm submitting to my wife in the sense that I put her desires above my own. And I do it willingly, because as we talked with wives, submission is never forced, it's always voluntary. Men, make no mistake, we're called to lead. And the decisions that we make as a family, ultimately, the responsibility falls to us. Men, you need to know this today. You will be held accountable in a way your wife will not because you've been called to lead, not her. But in all of our leadership, in all of our decisions, we're to have a heart that's always willingly laying down our lives and our own desires in favor of our wives. You see that beautiful picture? Leadership, but a leadership that's laying down our lives. Christ and his love is to be my example. The third lesson, the husband is to deepen his wife spiritually. He's called to deepen his wife spiritually. Look at verses 26 and 27. So that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, obviously, we're talking here primarily about Christ and the church, that that Christ laid down his life, that he might sanctify us, having washed us with the water of the word, and that he might present us, that Christ died to sanctify us, to save us, But his love is to be a model, and the way I love my wife is a calling to deepen her spiritually. Now, now does this mean that that you're to lecture your wife daily on the meaning of Scripture? 
No, men, hear me, no. The reality is, here's what I have found, that on often occasions, the wife will know more scripture than the husband does. But the clue to this principle lies, I believe, in the first two commands. I'm to love her. I'm to have a Christ-like love towards my wife. I give myself up for her like Christ gave himself up for me. And as I do that, who am I imitating? I'm imitating Christ. Men, when we love our wives like Christ loved the church, we are deepening our wives spiritually. Now, don't mishear me. We are called to lead our families in the study of Scripture. We are called to lead our families to pray. And that calling is irrespective of how much scripture you know or don't know. You're called to lead. That is part of our responsibility. But listen, I believe with all my heart, the best way to deepen your wife spiritually is to imitate Jesus in how you love her. Here's what I have found, men, is that You'd be hard-pressed to find a woman who wouldn't willingly submit her life to a man who loves her like Christ. You know, uh, I hear a complaint often from men. I work with a lot of men. This is the complaint that I often hear. They will say, my wife doesn't respect me. And wives, we talked about this, you do need to know, just as your deepest need is to be loved, your husband's deepest need is to be respected. But whenever a husband comes to me and says, my wife doesn't respect me, here's my encouragement every time. I will tell them, instead of focusing on how she should treat you, try focusing on how you should treat her. You focus on loving her like Christ and let God deal with her. You focus on your responsibilities rather than your rights, and I promise you, you will be much better off. Men, I pray the example that we're setting is a spiritual encouragement to our wives. Can I just ask you today, men, does your wife see you reading the Word of God? Does she see you studying Scripture? Does she know the ways in which the word of God is changing you, how it's molding you? Does your wife see the love of Christ in you? You see, my success in marriage is not based on how nice a car my wife drives or how nice a home she lives in. My success as a husband is based on whether or not she loves Christ more because I was in her life. My success is based on whether or not she loves Jesus more because I was in her life. Years ago, I did a funeral, participated in a funeral for a, a godly man. And the wife wanted to share, which is always especially powerful when a wife wants to share about her husband at his funeral. And if they're able to do that, we always encourage it. But this wife, she got up, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, the first best decision I ever made was trusting in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And then she said, the second best decision I ever made was marrying that man. Whew. That's powerful. 
Man, I don't know about you, but I don't want faith rejoicing at my funeral. Praise God, the burden is gone. Freedom. I want to leave a void because I was a representation of Christ in her life. There's also a reminder here of faithfulness. You see this description of the salvation that Christ accomplished for us. He gave himself up for the church. He died having cleansed her. That's the beginning of our relationship with Christ. When we trust in Christ, we've been cleansed. We've been declared judiciously righteous. Although we're still sinners, he declares us righteous judiciously through faith in Christ. And then it says that he might present her meaning that God will carry us on to completion and one day we'll be presented before the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. The picture here is that God is faithful in salvation from the beginning to the end. And his love is to be an example for how we love our wives, that we demonstrate the same kind of faithfulness, that we're faithful in our marriage commitment from beginning to end. God is a finisher. What he starts, he always finishes. Men, that is the model of our lives. What we start, we finish. When God was chastising the leadership of Israel and the men, one of the things that he brought against them is that they were divorcing their wives, they were leaving their wives for very small situations, and he said to the men of Israel, he says, essentially, I was there when you made that vow. I was there in your youth when you stood before me and you stood before that woman and you made a commitment. Can I tell you men, God was there at your wedding too. He was there that day when you made that commitment, not just to that woman, but to him. And God calls you to be faithful. What you start, you finish. The fourth thing that we see here is that the husband is to put his wife's needs above his own. Put his wife's needs above his own. Look at verses 28 through 30. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. What's interesting here is he said they love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. And there are some, they're not careful, they will take this to mean that you have to love yourself before you can love your wife. And I hear this statement oftentimes amongst Christians that before you can love, really love somebody else, you've got to love you. Listen to me, Paul is actually saying the exact opposite of that. What he's saying, listen, I find this to be so true. This is the mantra of our world. Love you. You want to be miserable and depressed in life? Then just make your life all about you. You want to find joy, peace, and fulfillment in life? Serve other people. Make your life about other people. See, what he's calling us to as husbands is that we, we naturally take care of ourselves, don't we? We naturally if we need something to drink, we go get something to drink. If we want something to eat, we go get something to eat. Listen, if you want a new driver, you're a golfer, what do you do? You start researching it. We naturally think of what we need a new fishing rod. We think about it. We, we, we need a new gun. We start thinking about it. We start researching Nobody has to tell us, hey, you need to think about you a little more. 
We naturally think of ourselves. What God is calling, that's natural. What God is calling us to here is the supernatural. And the supernatural is that through faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that's inside of us, we now take the love that we naturally have for ourselves and we redirect it towards our wife. That's supernatural. That's a love that can only be explained by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. That now through faith in Christ, we take the love that we naturally have ourselves and we redirect it towards God and our wife. We put the needs of our wife above our own. Then fifthly, the husband is to value his wife above all others. Look at verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The idea here is that of oneness. You see this throughout the passage, but specifically here, it's a oneness idea. When I was at my first church, Faith and I, in Montgomery, Alabama, there's a couple, I can't help it. Every time I read this, and then I read in the qualifications of a deacon and elder in Timothy 3, a one-woman kind of man, and I read this passage, I think of a couple named Alton and Alice Cumbus. And uh, Alton and Alice, two very successful people, two leaders, two wonderful people. But I'm telling you, there was a oneness in their relationship that was beautiful. Alton was in his latter years when I was there. Wherever his wife was, she would come, she would do something at the church, she'd have a women's Bible study or something, and Alton would just come up with her. And he'd sit in that chair and he'd read his Bible, and I loved, I loved going and just sitting with Alton. You know what, it, this was my favorite part. If you just said the name Alice, his eyes lit up. He just got a big grin on his face. There was a oneness between the two of them. She was the apple of his eye. There was no one else in his life, not even a close second, that he valued more than Alice. Men, can I just ask you a question today? Does your wife know how much you value her? Does your wife feel like she's having to compete with anyone or anything else as the supreme value in your life? Not, not just by your words, but by your actions. Other than Christ, my, my wife is to be the most important person in my life, above my children, above my friends, and even my family. That's why he says here, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Leave. Now, this doesn't mean geographically. It can. But you know what I've learned? You can live down the street and around the world and miss totally. It's not about geographical space. You can live close or far and miss the whole idea and principle of leading, leaving that, that Paul is talking about here. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you kick your parents out of your life to the curb. Uh, my mentor used to tell me, you do that, you'll make your in-laws an outlaw. And that's not good. You don't leave in terms of love and communication. You leave in terms of authority and priority. Not in terms of love and communication. You're still to honor your parents. You leave in terms of authority and priority. Meaning when a man gets married, he's establishing a new family unit. 
He's stepping out from underneath the authority of his parents and establishing a oneness with his wife whereby they make decisions together as a team and he's accountable, he's responsible. That as he makes decisions, his parents no longer are the authority, he makes decisions based upon his walk with the Lord in coordination with his wife, putting her needs above his own. That husband is now called to lead a new family unit with his wife at his side in a close oneness that demonstrates the beautiful relationship that exists between Christ and the church. It's interesting here, specifically Paul, as he writes this letter, he's talking to married couples. But I also think that kind of out of the corner of his eye, he's speaking to parents of children who are married. That you need to be reminded, if your daughter is married, you have handed her over. I think to me it's one of the most powerful parts of the wedding ceremony is that dad will walk his daughter down the aisle and he will literally hand her over. It's a powerful picture of what should be occurring, not just in communication and love, but now he's saying, she's yours. She's no longer ours in the way that she has been. She's yours. And I think on the, both sides of the parent-child relationship, we need to prepare ourselves and our children for that day. A day when they build a new family unit with a new authority structure of his own. And certainly, I've not been there, so I say these things with much fear and trepidation. But I believe If we do that as parents, we not only bring a blessing to our children, but we save ourselves as parents a lot of grief. But men, we're to value our lives above everyone else. Apart from Christ, no one more valuable. Men, can I just ask you, once again, is there anyone or anything that is competing with your wife as the most important person in your life? Who's getting the best of your time? Who's getting the best of your conversations? Make sure that apart from Christ, there's no one more important in your life than your wife. Then sixthly, marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church. Verses 33 through 32, it says this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is amazing to me. God in his sovereignty and wisdom has chosen to use the marriage relationship as a living illustration to the world of the beautiful relationship that exists between Christ and the church. When you think about this, are there, is there two things that are more important to God than Jesus and the people that Jesus died to save? Uh, those two things I would say are supremely important to the heart of God. And so for us to mess with this marriage relationship, tomorrow it must hurt the heart of God in a way that you and I can't even possibly comprehend. Your marriage is intended to be evangelistic. Men, your love for your wife should give your children and those around you a little glimpse of Jesus. Husbands, your goal should be that your children can point to your marriage and say, do you want to understand what the love of Christ looks like? then just watch how my dad loves my mom. Husbands, if someone were to watch your your life this week and they were to watch how you treat 
your wife, would your example accentuate your gospel message? Or would it discredit your gospel message? Make no mistake about it, this is not easy. As I've said before, this is not JV. This is varsity level. I get a privilege of doing some premarital counseling with couples, young couples. It's one of the great joys. I love it. It's so much fun. But you see these couples, and you've probably done this. Some of you have been married a good long while. You go to a wedding, and you see that couple, and they're in love. And, uh, boy, they're just in love, and they're excited. And there's excitement in that. But if you've been married a while, what are you thinking in your mind? They don't have a clue. I mean, that's what you're thinking. So if you're getting married, just know that's what the older co- folks in the room, they're, they're saying, you don't have a clue. You, you, you don't know. Because you can't really know till you've lived it. That's the thing about premarital counseling. You can do it all you want, but sometimes they got to live it. And it's not easy. These young couples, they have no idea the, the tears. Sometimes the hurt. The hard work how hard it will be to lay down their own desires, to put somebody else as more important than themselves. This design for marriage, listen, it is incredibly demanding. You give up your own individuality. You become one with another person. I think that's why I've seen here lately a lot of couples, they're getting married later in life, and I don't know that there's any pros or cons to either one of those things. You could debate those things. But just the simple fact is, the longer you live as a single individual, guess what? The more difficult it will be to give up your individuality and put the needs of somebody else above your own. You give up your individuality. You give up your own determination for your life in order to take up the concerns of another person. It's incredibly demanding. Oftentimes in marriage, we learn that this person we married is very, very different than the person that you dated. And even in the best of marriages, guess what? You spend the rest of your life trying to learn the intricacies of this person that you're now married to. It's demanding. But I would say to you today that what makes it demanding is also what makes it so glorious. Very simplistic way, I would tell you that the work is worth the effort. That in our marriages, we get the high privilege of being God's instruments in the world to display the love relationship between Christ and the church. That in your marriage, God has given you one of the most powerful tools for evangelism. That you get to put on display the transformational power of the gospel. That the hope is that your children, your neighbors, your co-workers, they would be able to look at your marriage and they would say, How do you do that? What's the secret? And those of you that have been married for a long time and you have God-glorifying marriages, I guarantee you if somebody came up to you and said, what's the secret? You probably wouldn't say, it's because I'm just such a great husband. Some of you would, but it'd be a joke and everybody would know it. (laughs) Do you know what? Almost inevitably, every person that has a God-honoring, glorifying Fulfilled marriage, they will tell you it's because of Jesus. Jesus saved me and he changed me 
And he's been gracious to me. And he's helped me become the man that God called me to be. It's not natural. It's supernatural through the power of the gospel. There are a few other things in this world that lend more credibility to our gospel message than our marriages. That's the fact of the matter. And few things are more discrediting to our gospel marriages or message than marriages that are struggling. This mystery is great. But even in the mystery of beautiful and divine glory, all of us are different, aren't we? Each one of us are uniquely created. And so what does that mean? It means that every one of our marriages are a little different. I tell couples all the time when I do my counseling, go talk to some other couples. Listen, what works for me in faith as we live out the principles of Scripture, it's going to look a little different in your marriage because you're unique. The needs of your wife are going to be a little different. The basic needs are the same, but it's going to flesh itself out a little differently. So all of our marriages are a little different. But the common bond that unites us is what? The thread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in our marriages, husbands, we display the love of Christ towards the church. And as wives, you get the beauty of displaying the respect that the church has for the leadership of Christ. And in it, we show the wonderful majesty and the glory of the gospel. Incredibly glory. Now, I want to say to you, this this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that you don't have disagreements. I tell couples all the time, anybody tells you they don't have disagreements, they're lying, all right? It's not that we don't have disagreements, but that in this wonderful relationship and in our relationship with Christ, guess what you see? The confession of sin. In your marriage, guess what you get to see? Repentance, forgiveness, grace, reconciliation, restoration, and redemption for the glory of Christ. So some of you, you may be here today, and you may be a husband right now, and you're sitting there or watching online, and you're saying, I've blown it. Listen to me today. There's no one too far gone that the gospel of Jesus Christ can't save and redeem. You may be in a place today where you feel like your marriage is hanging by a thread. Can I tell you the good news today is that God is rich in mercy. And he is a God who's really good at redemption. He loves it. And sometimes in the most impossible of situations is where God is most able to demonstrate his power. Don't give up. Run to Christ. I think far too often we try to do these things on our own. We kind of take the American way of gritting your teeth. Like I'm just going to grit my teeth and do better. I'm going to tell you what, in your own power, you can't do this. You can grit your teeth all day long. You can't do this. I'm telling you that a God-honoring, glorifying, fulfilled marriage is impossible in your strength. But through Christ and his strength, all things become powerful. All things become possible. Do we have a hymn? It's hard to find one for Father's Day. But we got one. And I was just, uh, I was actually listening to some worship this week. And this song hit me personally. Just as we remind ourselves today that we all need grace. No matter where we're at. We all need the grace of God. We need an advocate. We need a high priest. 
in 18, somewhere around 1860, uh, a lady named Charity Bancroft wrote a hymn. And it, it's amazing to me, the more, now I'm becoming an expert on hymnology. Can you believe that? Um, but I'm realizing you, women have written about half our hymns. Um, but she wrote this hymn, and uh, it, it picked up a little popularity in the 1870s. Charles Spurgeon included it in his hymn book, uh, Our Hymns of Faith, I think is what it was titled. He included there. And it had a little bit of popularity, but then it just lay dormant for 100 years. Until about the 1970s, a woman named Vicki Cook picked it up and set it to a new tune. And it's regained its popularity through Sovereign Grace Worship, and the Gettys have sang this. But it speaks of the advocate that we have before the Father. Do you know this today? I just pray you know this. You have a great high priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses. And do you know what he's doing today on your behalf? He's praying for you. Did you know that? I hope you know that. As a husband, if you're out there struggling, do you know this? You have a great high priest who is before the Father interceding on your behalf. He's pulling for you. He's, he's, he's praying for you. And you have a high priest in Christ who shed his blood so there's no, not, not, no condemnation. You turn to him in repentance and faith, there's forgiveness. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences, but there's forgiveness. Isn't that good news today? The slate clean through repentance. The beauty of God's word, when, the person, when a person shows the slightest act of repentance and turning towards God, God runs to them in forgiveness. It's beautiful, like the prodigal son and the father, the slightest turn. And listen to me, if you truly know Christ, he may take you through some tough times. Martin Luther said, marriage did for me what no monastery could. It showed me the depth of my own sinfulness. And he chronicles the fact that he had some really hard days. But marriage was the means by which God sanctified him. Listen to me. God's using this to change you, mold you into the man God wants you to be. And he who saved you, listen to me, he'll complete you. Rest in that. The hymn before the throne of God above. Pastor Bill, he's going to lead us. We got the words on the screen so you don't have to just hear me, which is awful. But let's stand together. I love this hymn. Just as you sing this, just hear the words. They're powerful words no matter where you're at today. Bill, you, you start us off with this hymn. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong Great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, Can bid 
him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable i am the king of glory and of grace one with himself my Savior and my God. Father, we come before you today not on the basis of our own merit, but we come on the basis of Christ's sacrificial death. We have no right to enter before you, but through faith in Christ, we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, we are so grateful today because we need you. We desperately need you. God, I pray that you would forgive us for where we've sinned. God, I pray that you would help us to be the men that you've called us to be, to have God honoring and glorifying marriages that illustrate the beautiful relationship between Christ and the church. God, if there's somebody here today, they're trying to live this apart from you. Maybe they've never trusted in you. God, I pray that you would show them today the depth of their sinfulness. This is impossible apart from the grace of Christ, and I pray that they would run to you in repentance and faith and know your salvation, your forgiveness, your freedom. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would have a heart of repentance. Constantly in our lives, turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. Save us, Lord. Help us. We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.